Welcome back to my relaxing literature podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast, please remember to subscribe, rate, and review on your podcast platform of choice. Tonight, we're continuing our reading of The Adventures of Tom Sawyer by Mark Twain. Chapter 32 Tuesday afternoon came and waned to the twilight. The village of St. Petersburg still mourned. The lost children had not been found. Public prayers had been offered up for them, and many, many a private prayer that had the petitioner's whole heart in it, but still no good news came from the cave. The majority of the searchers had given up the quest and gone back to their daily avocations, saying that it was plain the children could never be found. Mrs. Thatcher was very ill, and a great part of the time delirious. People said it was heartbreaking to hear her call her child and raise her head and listen a whole minute at a time, then lay it wearily down again with a moan. Aunt Polly had drooped into a settled melancholy, and her gray hair had grown almost white. The village went to its rest on Tuesday night, sad and forlorn. Away in the middle of the night, a wild peal burst from the village bells, and in a moment the streets were swarming with frantic, half-clad people who shouted, Turn out! Turn out! They're found! They're found! Tin pans and horns were added to the din. The population massed itself and moved toward the river, met the children coming in an open carriage drawn by shouting citizens, thronged around it, joined its homeward march, and swept magnificently up the main street, roaring huzzah after huzzah. The village was illuminated. Nobody went to bed again, it was the greatest night the little town had ever seen. During the first half hour, a procession of villagers filed through Judge Thatcher's house, seized the saved ones and kissed them, squeezed Mrs. Thatcher's hand, tried to speak but couldn't, and drifted out, raining tears all over the place. Aunt Polly's happiness was complete, and Mrs. Thatcher's nearly so. It would be complete, however, as soon as the messenger dispatched with the great news to the cave should get the word to her husband. Tom lay upon the sofa with an eager auditory about him and told the history of the wonderful adventure, putting in many striking additions to adorn it withal, and closed with a description of how he left Becky and went on an exploring expedition, how he followed two avenues as far as his kite line would reach, how he followed a third to the fullest stretch of the kite line, and was about to turn back when he glimpsed a far-off speck that looked like daylight, dropped the line and groped toward it, pushed his head and shoulders through a small hole, and saw the broad Mississippi rolling by. And if it had only happened to be the night, he would not have seen that speck of daylight and would not have explored that passage any more. He told how he went back for Becky and broke the good news, and she told him not to fret her with such stuff, for she was tired and knew she was going to die, 
and wanted to. He described how he labored with her and convinced her, and how she almost died for joy when she had groped to where she actually saw the blue speck of daylight, how he pushed his way out of the hole and then helped her out, how they sat there and cried for gladness, how some men came along in a skiff, and Tom hailed them and told them their situation and their famished condition, how the men didn't believe the wild tale at first because, said they, you are five miles down the river below the valley the cave is in, then took them aboard, rode to a house, gave them supper, made them rest till two or three hours after dark, and then brought them home. Before day dawn, Judge Thatcher and the handful of searchers with him were tracked out in the cave by the twine clues they had strung behind them and informed of the great news. Three days and nights of toil and hunger in the cave were not to be shaken off at once, as Tom and Becky soon discovered. They were bedridden all of Wednesday and Thursday, and seemed to grow more and more tired and worn all the time. Tom got about a little on Thursday, was downtown Friday, and nearly as whole as ever Saturday, but Becky did not leave her room until Sunday, and then she looked as if she had passed through a wasting illness. Tom learned of Huck's sickness and went to see him on Friday, but could not be admitted to the bedroom. Neither could he on Saturday or Sunday. He was admitted daily after that, but was warned to keep still about his adventure and introduce no exciting topic. The widow Douglas stayed by to see that he obeyed. At home, Tom learned of the Cardiff Hill event, also that the ragged man's body had eventually been found in the river near the ferry landing. He had been drowned while trying to escape, perhaps. About a fortnight after Tom's rescue from the cave, he started off to visit Huck, who had grown plenty strong enough, now, to hear exciting talk, and Tom had some that would interest him, he thought. Judge Thatcher's house was on Tom's way, and he stopped to see Becky. The judge had some friends set Tom to talking, and someone asked him ironically if he wouldn't like to go to the cave again. Tom said he thought he wouldn't mind it. The judge said, Well, there are others just like you, Tom. I've not the least doubt, but we have taken care of that. Nobody will get lost in that cave any more. Why? because I had its big door sheathed with a boiler iron two weeks ago and triple locked, and I've got the keys. Tom turned as white as a sheet. What's the matter, boy? Here, run, somebody, fetch a glass of water. The water was brought and thrown into Tom's face. Ah, now you're all right. What was the matter with you, Tom? Oh, Judge, Injun Joe's in the cave. Chapter 33 Within a few minutes the news had spread, and a dozen skiffloads of men were on their way to MacDougall's cave, and the ferry boat, well filled with passengers, soon followed. Tom Sawyer was in the skiff that bore Judge Thatcher. When the cave door was unlocked, a sorrowful sight presented itself in the dim twilight of the place. Injun Joe lay stretched upon the ground, dead, with his face close to the crack of the door, as if his longing eyes had been fixed to the latest moment upon the light and the cheer of the free world outside. 
Tom was touched, for he knew by his own experience how this wretch had suffered. His pity was moved, but nevertheless he felt an abounding sense of relief and security now, which revealed to him in a degree which he had not fully appreciated before how vast a weight of dread had been lying upon him since the day he lifted his voice against this bloody-minded outcast. In Jinjo's bowie knife lay close by, its blade broken in two. The great foundation beam of the door had been chipped and hacked through, with tedious labor. Useless labor, too, it was, for the native rock formed a sill outside it, and upon that stubborn material the knife had wrought no effect. The only damage done was to the knife itself. But if there had been no stony obstruction there, the labor would have been useless still, for if the beam had been wholly cut away, Injun Joe could not have squeezed his body under the door, and he knew it. So he had only hacked that place in order to be doing something, in order to pass the weary time, in order to employ his tortured faculties. Ordinary one could find half a dozen bits of candle stuck around in the crevices of this vestibule, left there by tourists, but there were none now. The prisoner had searched them out and eaten them. He had also contrived to catch a few bats, and these also he had eaten, leaving only their claws. The poor unfortunate had starved to death. In one place near at hand, a stalagmite had been slowly growing up from the ground for ages, builded by the water drip from a stalactite overhead. The captive had broken off the stalagmite, and upon the stump had placed a stone wherein he had scooped a shallow hollow to catch the precious drop that fell once in every three minutes with the dreary regularity of a clock tick, a dessert's spoonful once in four and twenty-four hours. That drop was falling when the pyramids were new, when Troy fell, when the foundations of Rome were laid, when Christ was crucified, when the conqueror created the British Empire, when Columbus sailed, when the massacre at Lexington was news. It is falling now. It will still be falling when all these things shall have sunk down the afternoon of history and the twilight of tradition, and been swallowed up in the thick night of oblivion. Has everything a purpose and a mission? Did this drop fall patiently during five thousand years to be ready for the splitting human insect's need? And has it yet another important object to accomplish ten thousand years to come? No matter. It is many and many a year since the hapless half-breed scooped out the stone to catch the priceless drops, but to this day the tourist stares longest at that pathetic stone and that slow-dropping water when he comes to see the wonders of MacDougall's cave. Injun Joe's cup stands first in the list of the cavern's marvels. Even Aladdin's palace cannot rival it. Injun Joe was buried near the mouth of the cave, and people flocked there in boats and wagons from the towns and from all the farms and hamlets for seven miles around. They brought their children and all sorts of provisions and confessed that they had almost as satisfactory a time at the funeral as they could have had at the hanging. 
This funeral stopped the further growth of one thing, the petition to the governor for Injun Joe's pardon. The petition had been largely signed, many tearful and eloquent meetings had been held, and a committee of sappy women had been appointed to go in deep mourning and wail around the governor and implore him to be a merciful ass and trample his duty underfoot. Injun Joe was believed to have killed five citizens of the village, but what of that? If he had been Satan himself, there would have been plenty of weaklings ready to scribble their names to a pardon petition and drip a tear on it from their permanently impaired and leaky waterworks. The morning after the funeral, Tom took Huck to a private place to have an important talk. Huck had learned all about Tom's adventure from the Welshman and the Widow Douglas by this time, but Tom said he reckoned that there was one thing they had not told him. That thing was what he wanted to talk about now. Huck's face saddened. He said, I know what it is. You got into number two and never found anything but whiskey. Nobody told me it was you, but I just knowed it must have been you soon as I heard about that whiskey business, and I knowed you hadn't got the money, because you'd have got at me some way or other and told me, even if you was mum to everybody else. Tom, something's always told me we'd never get a hold of that swag. Why, well, Huck, I never told on that tavern keeper. You know his tavern was all right the Saturday I went to the picnic. Don't you remember you was to watch there that night? Oh, yes. Why, it seems about a year ago. It was that very night that I followed Injun Joe to the Witters. You followed him? Yes. But you keep mum. I reckon Injun Joe's left friends behind him, and I don't want him souring on me and doing me mean tricks. If it hadn't been for me, he'd be down in Texas now, all right. Then Huck told his entire adventure in confidence to Tom, who had only heard of the Welshman's part of it before. Well, said Huck presently, coming to the main question, whoever nipped the whiskey in number two nipped the money too, I reckon. Anyways, it's a goner for us, Tom. Huck, that money was never in number two. What? Huck searched his comrade's face keenly. Tom, have you got on that track of that money again? Huck, it's in the cave. Huck's eyes blazed. Say it again, Tom. The money's in the cave. Tom, honest engine now. Is it fun or earnest? Earnest, Huck. Just as earnest as I ever was in my life. Will you go in there with me and help me get it out? I bet I will. I will if it's where we can blaze our way to it and not get lost. Huck, we can do that without the least little bit of trouble in the world. Good as wheat. What makes you think the money's... Huck, you just wait till we get there. If we don't find it, I'll agree to give you my drum and everything I've got in the world. I will, by jings. All right. It's a whiz. When do you say? Right now, if you say it. Are you strong enough? Is it far in the cave? I've been on my pins a little, three or four days now, but I can't walk more than a mile, Tom. At least I don't think I could. It's about five miles into there the way anybody but me would go, Huck but there's a mighty shortcut that they don't anybody but me know about. Huck, I'll take you right to it in a skiff. I'll float the skiff down there, and I'll pull it back again all by myself. You needn't ever turn your hand over. 
Let's start right off, Tom. All right. We want some bread and meat and our pipes and a little bag or two and two or three kite strings and some of those newfangled things they call lucifer matches. I tell you, many's the time I wished I had some of them when I was in there before. A trifle afternoon, the boys borrowed a small skiff from a citizen who was absent and got under way at once. When they were several miles below Cave Hollow, Tom said, Now you see this bluff here looks all alike all the way down from the Cave Hollow. No houses, no woodyards, bushes all alike. But do you see that white place up yonder where there's been a landslide? Well, that's the one of my marks. We'll get ashore now. They landed. Now, Huck, where we're a-standin', you could touch that hole I got out of with a fishing pole. See if you can find it. Huck searched all about the place and found nothing. Tom proudly marched into a thick clump of sumac bushes and said, Here you are. Look at it, Huck. It's the snuggest hole in this country. You just keep mum about it. All along, I've been wantin' to be a robber, but I knew I'd got to have a thing like this, and where to run across it was the bother. We've got it now, and we'll keep it quiet, only we'll let Joe Harper and Ben Rogers in, because, of course, there's got to be a gang, or else there wouldn't be any style about it. Tom Sawyer's gang. It sounds splendid, don't it, Huck? Well, it just does, Tom. And who will we rob? Almost anybody. Waylay people. That's mostly the way. And kill them? No, not always. Hive them in the cave till they raise a ransom. What's a ransom? Money. You make them raise all they can, often their friends, and after you've kept them a year, if it ain't raised, then you kill them. That's the general way. Only you don't kill the women. You shut up the women, but you don't kill them. They're always beautiful and rich and awfully scared. You take their watches and things, but you always take your hat off and talk polite. They ain't anybody as polite as robbers. You'll see that in any book. Well, the women will get to loving you, and after they've been in the cave a week or two, they stop crying, and after that you couldn't get them to leave. If you drove them out, they'd turn around and come right back. It's so in all the books. Why, it's real bully, Tom. I believe it's better to be a pirate. Yes, it's better in some ways, because it's close to home, and circuses and all that. By this time, everything was ready, and the boys entered the hole, Tom in the lead. They toiled their way to the farther end of the tunnel, and then made their spliced kite strings fast and moved on. A few steps brought them to the spring, and Tom felt a shudder quiver all through him. He showed Huck the fragment of a candle wick perched on a lump of clay against the wall, and described how he and Becky watched the flame struggle and expire. The boys began to quiet down to whispers now, for the stillness and gloom of the place oppressed their spirits. They went on, and presently entered and followed Tom's other corridor until they reached the jumping-off place. The candles revealed the fact that it was not really a precipice, but only a steep clay hill twenty or thirty feet high. Tom whispered, Now I'll show you something, Huck. He held his candle aloft and said, Look as far around the corner as you can. Do you see that? There, on the big rock over yonder, done with candle smoke. Tom, it's a cross. Now where's your number two? Under the cross, hey? 
right yonder's where I saw Injun Joe poke up his candle, Huck. Huck stared at the mystic sign a while and then said with a shaky voice, Tom, let's get out of here. What, and leave the treasure? Yes, leave it. Injun Joe's ghost is round about there, certain. No, it ain't, Huck, no, it ain't. It would haunt the place where he died, away out at the mouth of the cave five miles from here. No, Tom, it wouldn't. It would hang round the money. I know the ways of ghosts, and so do you. Tom began to fear that Huck was right. Misgivings gathered in his mind, but presently an idea occurred to him. Look a here, Huck. What fools we're making of ourselves. Injun Joe's ghost ain't going to come round where there's a cross. The point was well taken. It had its effect. Tom, I didn't think of that, but that's so. It's luck for us, that cross is. I reckon we'll climb down there and have a hunt for that box. Tom went first, cutting rude steps in the clay hill as he descended. Huck followed. Four avenues opened out of the small cavern which the great rock stood in. The boys examined three of them with no result. They found a small recess in the one nearest the base of the rock, with a pallet of blankets spread down in it, also an old suspender, some bacon rind, and the well-gnawed bones of two or three fowls. But there was no money box. The lads searched and researched this place, but in vain. Tom said, He said, Under the cross. Well, this comes nearest to being under the cross. It can't be under the rock itself, because that sets solid on the ground. They searched everywhere once more, and then sat down discouraged. Huck could suggest nothing. By and by, Tom said, Looky here, Huck. There's footprints and some candle grease on the clay about one side of this rock, but not on the other sides. Now what's that for? I bet you the money is under the rock. I'm going to dig in the clay. That ain't no bad notion, Tom, said Huck with animation. Tom's real Barlow was out at once, and he had not dug four inches before he struck wood. Hey, Huck, did you hear that? Huck began to dig and scratch now. Some boards were soon uncovered and removed. They had concealed a natural chasm which led under the rock. Tom got into this and held his candle as far under the rock as he could, but said he could not see to the end of the rift. He proposed to explore. He stooped and passed under. The narrow way descended gradually. He followed its winding course, first to the right, then to the left, Huck at his heels. Tom turned a short curve by and by and exclaimed, My goodness, Huck, looky here! It was the treasure box, sure enough, occupying a snug little cavern along with an empty powder keg, a couple of guns in leather cases, two or three pairs of old moccasins, a leather belt, and some other rubbish well soaked with the water drip. Got it at last, said Huck, plowing among the tarnished coins with his hand. My, but we're rich, Tom. Huck, I always reckoned we'd get it. It's just too good to believe, but we have got it, sure. Say, let's not fool around here. Let's snake it out. Let me see if I can lift the box. It weighed about fifty pounds. Tom could lift it, after an awkward fashion, but could not carry it conveniently. I thought so, he said. 
They carried it like it was heavy that day at the haunted house. I noticed that. I reckon I was right to think of fetching the little bags along. The money was soon in the bags, and the boys took it up to the cross rock. Now let's fetch the guns and things, said Huck. No, Huck, leave them there. They're just the tricks to have when we go to Robin. We'll keep them there all the time, and we'll hold our orgies there, too. It's an awful snug place for orgies. What orgies? I don't know, but robbers always have orgies, and of course we've got to have them, too. Come along, Huck. We've been in here a long time. It's getting late, I reckon. I'm hungry, too. We'll eat and smoke when we get to the skiff. They presently emerged into the clump of sumac bushes, looked warily out, found the coast clear, and were soon lunching and smoking in the skiff. As the sun dipped toward the horizon, they pushed out and got under way. Tom skimmed up the shore through the long twilight, chatting cheerily with Huck, and landed shortly after dark. Now, Huck, said Tom, we'll hide the money in the loft of the widow's woodshed, and I'll come up in the morning, and we'll count it and divide, and then we'll hunt out a place in the woods for where it'll be safe. Just you lay quiet here and watch the stuff till I run and hook Benny Taylor's little wagon. I won't be gone a minute. He disappeared and presently returned with the wagon, put two small sacks into it, threw some old rags on top of them, and started off dragging his cargo behind him. When the boys reached the Welshman's house, they stopped to rest. Just as they were about to move on, the Welshman stepped out and said, Hello, who's that? Huck and Tom Sawyer. Good, come along with me, boys. You are keeping everybody waiting. Here, hurry up, trot ahead. I'll haul the wagon for you. Why, it's not as light as it might be. Got bricks in it or old metal? Old metal said Tom. I judged so. The boys in this town will take more trouble and fool away more time hunting up six bits worth of old iron to sell to the foundry than they would to make twice the money at regular work. But that's human nature. Hurry along, hurry along. The boys wanted to know what the hurry was about. Never mind, you'll see, when we get to the widow Douglas's. Huck said with some apprehension, for he was long used to being falsely accused. Mr. Jones, we haven't been doing nothing. The Welshman laughed. Well, I don't know, Huck, my boy. I don't know about that. Ain't you and the widow good friends? Yes. Well, she's been good friends to me anyway. All right, then. What do you want to be afraid for? This question was not entirely answered in Huck's slow mind before he found himself pushed, along with Tom, into Mrs. Douglas's drawing room. Mr. Jones left the wagon near the door and followed. The place was grandly lighted, and everybody that was of any consequence in the village was there. The Thatchers were there, the Harpers, the Rogerses, Aunt Polly, Sid, Mary, the minister, the editor, and a great many more, and all dressed in their best. The widow received the boys as heartily as anyone could well receive two such-looking beings. They were covered with clay and candle grease. Aunt Polly blushed crimson with humiliation and frowned and shook her head at Tom. Nobody suffered half as much as the two boys did, however. Mr. Jones said, Tom wasn't at home yet, so I gave him up, but I stumbled on him and Huck right at my door, and so I just brought them along in a hurry. 
and you did just right, said the willow. Come with me, boys. She took them to a bedchamber and said, Now wash and dress yourselves. Here are two new suits of clothes, shirts, socks, everything complete. They're hucks. No, no thanks, Huck. Mr. Jones bought one and I the other, but they'll fit both of you. Get into them. We'll wait. Come down when you are slicked up enough. And then she left. Thank you so much for joining me for another relaxing literature podcast. If you are enjoying this podcast, please consider supporting to help me improve the quality. You can support me monthly by subscribing to my Patreon account, or simply do a one-time donation at Buy Me a Coffee. You can find the links to both of these in the episode description. Thank you so much for listening, and good night.